This morning, as we look at 2 Kings chapter 19, uh, we're going to look at a small section. I want to read before, as you're turning to 2 Kings 19, I want to read two verses to you from Psalm 9. And we're going to start off by looking at this and kind of building in the idea of what we're, it's kind of creating the concept of what we're going to be talking about in 2 Kings 19. So here in Psalm 9, verses 9 through 10, it says this, The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. What caught my eye about this text? First of all, I wanted to talk about God being our refuge and what that means. But what caught my eye in this text as I was looking at it, kind of preparing for our study in 2 Kings 19, is that he says in verse 10 of Psalm 9, those who know your name, those who know your name. Now, I really do think as a church, we understand what he means or what he's getting at. But as David is writing this, you understand that David is not implying that if you know the name of the Lord, simply know what the name of the Lord is, that poof, your trust is in him. It's not like an automatic thing like that. We understand that. But I think that lots of times, just because somebody knows about Christ, about Jesus, somebody knows about God, that they think that they actually know him. They have personal experience with him. And that's not necessarily the case. We understand that what David is teaching here, as he talks about going to God as our refuge and going to him as our source of protection, our source of defense. He is our line of defense. God himself is our line of defense. He's talking about those who know him in this way are those who have personal experiential knowledge of the Lord. These are people who know who God is, not just about him, but they have experienced him. It's just as the scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. People that run to the Lord and find their refuge in him are people who have tasted and seen. And so it's important that we who have that kind of experiential knowledge, it's important that when we get into times of trial and distress, that we are instinctively running to God, that we instinctively run to him. And people who have that kind of knowledge, I think, they, they go that direction, but oftentimes I think that when we experience these kind of trials and struggles and situations that we're unaccustomed to, we can discover idolatry in our lives. We want to believe that we're like those who just run to the Lord's arms in times of trial. I think that it's easy to picture ourselves being that way when we don't have trials. But we discover who we really are when we get into that situation, we find out what direction we're actually running. And we know that God does not abandon those who seek him. David said it here in Psalm 9. God does not abandon those who seek him. In fact, James 5.8, we know, says that if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. Meaning that when we intentionally try to get close to God, pull ourselves in. By the way, it's not a try. We get close to God if we want to. If we seek for God, he's not hiding from you. And so as we're intentionally drawing close to God, he draws near to us. He reciprocates. He draws near. Discovery of idols in our lives is often activated by troubled times because we actually get a living example of our either effective and, and active movement towards God or away from him. And I think this is really important for us to recognize in a season like this, when we're taken out of our habits, our comfort zones, it's right here in that place that we run to whatever we've been worshiping. We're going to run into the arms of whatever we've been worshiping and discover whether it's worthy of our worship or not. 
Some will run to alcohol. Some will run to their friends. Some will run to any kind of uh, situation or any kind of maybe media that they, that they find their, their satisfaction or their self-worth in. Many in this season, even though there are great benefits, obviously, to us meeting via social media, us using the technology of our day, but some find in social media their identity. They find in social media, they find in things like this, like what we're using, their source of value. And this is idolatry in our lives, and we have to recognize it's not a refuge at all. It's not a refuge at all. The Lord, he is a refuge. And, and that Hebrew word that David uses in Psalm 9 is misgob, and it's, it means defense or high fortress. We're talking about a very defensible, protected place to be. And, and we know in God, there is no better misgob than God. There is no better fortress or refuge than our God. David talks about it often in the Psalms. And this morning, what we're going to look at in our text in 2 Kings 19 is a king who wasn't like a lot of kings during his time. He wasn't like a lot of kings during his time in that when he was threatened, this king, King Hezekiah of Judah, runs to the Lord. He runs to God who is his strength. And he begins in the house of the Lord, which is where you would worship. He goes to the temple. And so here in 2 Kings 19, we get this awesome reassurance that God is our defense. And not just that, we have to pay special attention to this. We will be reminded that God hears that he sees and that he acts on behalf of his people. God will hear, he will see, and he will act on our behalf. If we find our refuge in him, if we find him to be our fortress, if we shelter in God. Now, just to get you up to speed with what's going on in Hezekiah's moment, where he's at in 2 Kings chapter 19, Hezekiah has received a letter from Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria. And they had been there who had invaded, they'd invaded Judah. And after threatening Hezekiah and the people who were in Jerusalem harshly and uh, getting many victories over the strongholds in Judah, King Sennacherib gets called out to fight after threatening Hezekiah, gets called out to fight on another front. He's going to leave. And Isaiah had told Hezekiah this was going to happen, that he was going to be leaving and that he would die in his own land. But before he leaves, he, he leaves a, a dispatch. He dispatches a letter, basically a parting blow or a parting threat uh, to Hezekiah. And this letter that he gives him basically says that Hezekiah shouldn't let God deceive him into thinking that he and his people will be saved by the Lord. Sennacherib says, don't let your God deceive you to think that he can save you from me. A man is saying this about God. In fact, he says this in his letter, no God has been able to withstand the might of my armies thus far. And the Lord and his people, Sennacherib says, they'll be no different. He says, Hezekiah, don't think for a second that you're going to be delivered. Look at my track record, buddy. You know, he's like, look at all the nations that I've wiped out. No one has stood against me and lived. And so we might laugh at such a threat because we're reading it in the Bible. The majority of us who are watching, if you're watching online right now and you're like, I don't really know that much about the Bible or God, welcome, stay, stay and, and interact with us. Absolutely stay. But I, I'm going to assume that for the most part, most of us who are watching right now are kind of laughing at Sennacherib going, you're actually picking a fight with God. But what Sennacherib says 
there's only one part of it that's really not true. It's what he's forecasting. If it comes to what he's talked about, his accomplishments have been thus far, Sennacherib is not boasting about things he has not done. He's boasting about things he has done. And so if you're in Hezekiah's shoes, you're looking at the situation that is reality. You're looking at the situation as it is in reality, and the reality of it is, this king has wrecked not only the strongholds of Judah up to this point, hasn't taken Jerusalem, but he's, he's conquered many other areas, but all the nations and all the gods that he claims to have destroyed, he has. And so just because we look back and we see a history of success doesn't mean that we stop trusting in God just because what he said up to this point is true. Because the moment that King Sennacherib doomed himself was the moment that he looked at the almighty, all-powerful, living God and said, you can't stop me. That's when Sennacherib was dead in his tracks. He chose a fight. He picked a fight with the living God. What we find in this text, what we're going to be really encouraged with, I hope this morning, is that that's the God that we serve. That is the God that we serve, is the living God today, right now. And so it doesn't matter what the history has brought us to this point when we look at maybe a virus, when we look at the economy, when we look at all these things, we go, all of these bad things are happening. <sighs> Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. They're laughing at me. You can laugh too. But seriously, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. Because God is just as powerful now. He is not old and tired. He is not waxed or waned. God is just as powerful now to save us. <laughs> you know, I'm using, I'm using old, old terminology. And, and the, the females in the room are laughing because I said wax. Uh, <laughs> God's not waxed. I'm not. Well, we'll make shirts. God is not waxed. So <laughs> I'm not saying he's like Esau, but you know, maybe he's anyway. That's, that's beyond the point. Okay. So you guys, let's, let's look at the text. Let's get into the text. You're like, that's a long introduction. I know. I know. I have a lot of liberty here. It's just me and, and these guys. And they're used to listening to me laugh or listen to me talk. So they're used to listening to me laugh too. Yeah, myself. So here, here's what we're going to get into. Second Kings chapter 19. Let's take this verse by verse. We're just going to break it down as we go. So Hezekiah has received this letter. He's received this letter from Sennacherib. And so he does this in second Kings 19, beginning in verse 14 says this, Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, and then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah goes directly to God. Now, you will see this in the text if you read the books of the kings. Oftentimes, the message of the Lord is coming from prophet to king. God is speaking to his prophets, and they are relaying that message to the king. It happens with Hezekiah, with Isaiah as well. Isaiah the prophet is relaying a lot of messages um, from God to the king. But Hezekiah, in this moment of distress, does something important. He goes directly to God himself. It's interesting because some of you might have heard this this last week. Uh, the Pope made a statement that if you can't make it to confessions because of social distancing, you can now officially confess your sin to God directly. I'll read you the quote. He said, do what the catechism of the Catholic Church says. It is very clear. If you cannot find a priest to confess to, speak directly with God, your father, and tell him the truth. Say, Lord, I did this, this, and this. Forgive me. And ask for pardon with all your heart. End quote. Let me, let me just say this. And let me state this really clearly and biblically. 
there should never be a man, a person in between you and your heavenly father. And do you know the biblical reason why? Jesus himself tore the veil that separated us and God. Don't sew it back up again. Don't sew that veil back together again. He rent that in two. The path that blocked us to God was rent in two by God himself. We now have access to the Father. We don't have to go through a person. It's funny because if you can't find a priest to confess to, for me, it's like hide from them then. Never find a priest to confess to. Always go into the presence of the living God. Hezekiah didn't hesitate. And this is, this is pre-Christ. He doesn't hesitate to go into the temple, to lay this letter out, to cry out to God. We know that Jesus made this path open for us. Read, read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 1 John 1, 9, we know this verse well. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Go directly to God. Go directly to God. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to God. You don't have to go around the board. You can go straight to him. You don't have to do any kind of weird geriatric workouts to get to him. You don't have to do that. Go directly to the throne room of grace. If you are struggling, if you are having a difficult time right now, if you don't have answers for all the things that are going on in your life, because I sure don't, we can go directly into the throne room of God. We can confess sin there. We can repent there. We can be healed there. We can have mercy there. We can have grace given to us there. That is where we connect with God directly. No person connects us to him. Jesus is our mediator. He has opened the way and we can enter right in. Hezekiah lays this letter of threatening out and he goes directly to God and he says this, verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Hezekiah prays and describes God as the one who is enthroned between the cherubim. We know this if we read Exodus chapter 25, the designs of the Ark of the Covenant are given. And it's where God states in verse 22 that he'll meet with Moses there in between the cherubim. He says, I will dwell there between the cherubim, speaking of the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, you will meet with me there. I want to point something out to you that's really fascinating. You can do some study on this later if you like. Within the Ark of the Covenant, they placed the Ten Commandments. They placed the budding rod of Aaron and they placed manna, a jar of manna. All of those things symbolize the failure of man. Those things symbolize man's failure. They're in the ark and the holiness of God. God's presence would come and dwell in between the cherubim over the top. That's the lid of the ark. And do you know what was beneath them that, 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 that was in between the failure of man and the holiness of God? It was something called the mercy seat. It was something called the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. 
He is the one who has come in between the rightful, righteous wrath of God and man's failure and fixed the problem. Even there on the Ark of the Covenant, we have this amazing picture of God's holiness and man's failure and how Jesus is our mercy seat. Okay, that was free. That's not even in the notes. That one was for free. And so Hezekiah says this. He goes, I'm coming to you, God, the God who dwells between the cherubim. He's recognizing this is the presence of God that I am praying to. And he says this. He recognizes God's faithfulness to his word. We know that God never breaks his word. And he recognizes God's power. You are God. You alone. Not my PlayStation 4. Not my favorite, you know, uh, game that I like to play. Not my iPhone. Not my house. Not my people. Not my cars. Nothing. You, God, are God alone. You are worthy of worship. You are holy. You are righteous. And he recognizes God's power when he says, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you are the king. You made the heavens. You made the earth. Everything has been made by you, therefore is in submission to you. Whether they are aware of it or not, they are beneath him. By the way, that includes viruses. Hezekiah positions himself properly. And he says this, I'm an under king. I'm an under king to you. I am under authority. I'm someone who acts as under authority. God alone is the maker of heavens and earth. Isaiah 44 verse 6. Uh, fascinating passage, but I want to read this one verse to you because in this one verse pertaining to who Hezekiah is saying God is in this moment. Isaiah in, in chapter 44 verse 6, he gives six titles for God in one verse. Check this out. Isaiah 44 6. This is what the Lord, first title, the king of Israel, second, and its redeemer, third, the Lord of armies, that's fourth, says, I am the first and I am the last. Six titles for God in one verse, the Lord, the king of Israel, its redeemer, the Lord of armies. That means that he is the God over heaven's armies. He is the most powerful general that we've ever seen or heard of or ever will. He's the first, nothing pre-exists him. He is the last, nothing will outlast him. And so as you think about this, he says there in that, at the end of Isaiah 44, 6, there is no God but me. This is it. God is it. God is all of these things. And so while Hezekiah is recognizing this, I just as a, as a note for us to consider, Hezekiah is recognizing the power of God. He's recognizing who God is. And, and we see all these names that Isaiah, who was the prophet of Hezekiah, gives the names of God in this one passage in Isaiah chapter 44. But we know God for a seventh name as well. We know God as a seventh name. He gives six in Isaiah 44, six. I'd supplement one more. We call him Abba. We call him dad. Romans chapter eight, verse 14. Galatians chapter four, verse six. We cry out to God as our dad. There's another name that we have for him in Christ Jesus. This is so overwhelmingly good. Please hear me. We call him our father. And we pray to him as our father. He is all of the things that Hezekiah recognizes him as. He is also our father. God is everything. And because he's our father, we run to him in times of trouble. We recognize this about God. He's not just our fortress. He's our father. And we ask him to protect us. 
and we ask him to act on our behalf. Verse 16, as Hezekiah continues in chapter 14, or excuse me, chapter 19 of 2 Kings, verse 16, he says this, Listen closely, Lord, hear. Open your eyes, Lord, see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. God hears, God sees. And the key to Hezekiah's statements following is at the end of verse 16. Sennacherib has done something that he has not been able to do with all of these other nations. He's mocking a living God now. He's mocking a living God. You can mock something that isn't living. Go ahead and do it. You can mock anything in the room that's with you that isn't living. Last time I checked, if you mock the lamp, the lamp is not going to act out and defend itself. Okay? You can mock an inanimate object with no repercussions. But when you mock something that's living, there is usually repercussions to that. There's something that happens in response because what you're mocking is living. And what Hezekiah is saying is clear. All these gods that he says he's done this to, yeah, they're dead. He's about to talk about it in a second. He goes, but he's mocking you, Lord. This is a whole different ballgame. This is a whole different situation. We are the children of the living God. And our God is good. And our God saves. Amen. I hope in your house you just said amen. Amen. Our God not only is living, but our God saves. Check verse 17. Look at this. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. Full recognition that what Sennacherib has said is true. They have thrown their gods into the fire. They were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Makes perfect sense. If you think about it, the northern kingdom of Israel, which had fallen at this point, they were gone. They've been carried away by Assyria. They have been punished by the Lord for their idolatry. They had fallen to the idolatry of the nations around them. And God had told them over and again in the law that if they did this, he would destroy them. And they continued. He gave them hundreds of years to fix the problem and they would not listen. Second Kings chapter 17 verses 14 through 15 speaks of their rejection of the message of God through the prophets to the northern, northern nation of Israel. This is when the northern nation of Israel fell. And it says this in 2 Kings 17, 14, but they would not listen to the prophets. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord, their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant he had made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. Did you notice the part I emphasized? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Permit me a very important rabbit trail to this whole equation. It's a biblical principle that we become what we worship. It's taught all throughout scripture. If we worship God, then we're molded into his image. Paul describes this in Romans 8, 29. God is conforming us into the image of his son. Those who have submitted ourselves to him, those that worship him, he's conforming us into the image of his son. But this principle works both directions. And so while we worship God, we get conformed into the image of our savior. If we're worshiping anything else, we're becoming like that thing. Meaning that if we worship anything besides God, this is what we would identify as idolatry then we're being conformed into the image of whatever that thing we worship is. 
And God is the only one who can redeem us, the only one who can save us, the only one that can complete us. We are becoming like something that cannot save us, that will lead us to death when we worship anything but God. When we are given to idolatry, we're lost. We are doomed. We'll never be completed. If what you worship can be destroyed, it is not worthy of your worship. If what you worship can be destroyed, it's not worthy of your worship. God is untouchable, therefore he is worthy of your worship. God is the living God, therefore he is worthy of your worship. God will never, he's the first and the last. Nothing preceded, nothing will outlive. He is the only one worthy of your worship. You were created worshiping and created to worship him. So when that worship diverts, idolatry happens. This is so important for us to recognize. When we worship worthless things, we become worthless ourselves. And that's not what we were created for. We were created to be conformed into his image. We were created to be image bearers of God. God is so faithful when we get off course to remind us of this truth. All throughout scripture, it's there. But situations like we're in, when our lives get into the situations that we're in right now, it becomes very evident what we worship. It becomes very evident if we're actually worshiping God or if we're worshiping anything else. Because the thing, if we are worshiping something besides God that we are leaning on, we find out. Sennacherib actually said this to Hezekiah prior to this text in reference to Egypt. It's like a splintering reed. It's something that you try to lean on, but shatters and goes right through your hand and pales your hand, leaves a wound behind. We start finding out just how many splintering reeds we're leaning on in seasons like this. And this is so important for us to take a moment and to look at our lives and go, Lord, is there anything that I'm worshiping besides you? Because I don't want to become worthless. And in fact, you will find that the believers, those who are holding fast to God, rise up in situations like this and begin showing his glory because he is working powerfully through them. And he is the living God who sustains and saves. We start seeing God do those things now in these times. No person, no object, nothing in this world besides God can redeem evil days. Only God can, can make the most out of dark times. And so when Hezekiah admits, Lord, it's true that the king of Assyria has devastated the nations and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire. He recognizes that Assyria has been victorious over things that are powerless Things that are not living, that can't save themselves. If you can pick up a little idol and throw it into a fire, it's not very powerful. You know, it's not even going to scream as it goes in there. It's not even going to do that. Like it, or in, in the fire world, it's, it's an inanimate object. And therefore, inanimate means inept. It's not able to defend itself. They had no ability to stop the king of Assyria from destroying them. These people trusted in man-made objects to save them. Of course they were powerless. And I want to encourage the church in this season. Do not trust in man-made things to save you. Can I speak to this really specifically? Here, March 29th. March 29th, 2020. A stimulus package is not going to save you. It can help. It can help. We can use that for the Lord but it's not going to save you. Money is not going to save you. Your job is not going to save you. Your possessions are not going to save you. 
Your hobbies are not going to save you. Our God can save us. Let's put our hope in him. Let's put our trust in him. These concerns that we have over the season that we're in, let's come and lay them out before the Lord and cry out to God. We serve the living God. He is alive. He has ears that hear. He has eyes that see. And he has the strength to save. Look at verse 19. Church, as we look at verse 19, I want you to not only see this as salvation for his church, I want you to hear this as a cry for revival. This is an outcry for revival from the church to our God. Now, Lord, our God, please save us. Okay, that's the act of him saving us. I want to echo that prayer. Hezekiah is praying in a real way. I want us to pray in a real way in our situation. Lord, please save us from his power. He's speaking of Sennacherib. So that, this is the important part. This is the revival part. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are Lord. You are God. You alone. That's why we're asking to be saved. That's why we're asking to be preserved. That's why we're crying out to God for his provision right now, because we want the world to know that our God is alive, that he's not like all these dead things that other people have been worshiping for millennia. Our God is alive. He has always been alive. He is able to save right now. And we as the church need to model what it looks like to come alive for Christ, to be saved by Christ so that the world can see, so that they will know All the kingdoms of the earth may know that he is Lord, that he is God, him alone, so that they will know that he is the redeemer, so that they will know that he is the king, that he is the Lord of heaven's armies, that he's the first, that he's the last, that he's our father. That's what we want. That's what we're here to see. That's why God has brought us into this season. And be sure of this. If the church does not cry out for God to create this change in our world, that we are wasting an opportunity for revival in our land right now. We are wasting that opportunity if we aren't looking for God to revive us in this season because he brings us into seasons like this to glorify his name. Guys, this is it. This is the moment we've been here for. We were placed here. I don't know how many days we have after this, but I know that right now, every single one of us who calls ourselves church, we have been put here right now to be a part of this revival. This is what God wants to do. The situation that the people of Judah found themselves in was It was not a surprise to God. This was not a surprise to him. The situation we are currently in church is not a surprise to him. He's not shocked at our situation. He knew this was coming and he put us here for such a season as this. This is our opportunity through our humble obedience to Christ for God to save us from this situation so that the world will know and that they will turn to him. It'll be a witness to the world around us that our God is able to save. How many times through the ages has God given his people the opportunity to submit to him in crisis so that he can be glorified in front of the world? All throughout history, whether it was the nation of Israel, whether it was the split nations of Israel and Judah, whether it was the coming of the Savior, whether it was the age of the church, whatever you look at, There are so many times that God has brought his people through crisis to glorify himself in front of the world. We are his workmanship created for good works in Christ Jesus. And those good works shine so brightly in dark times. If we start looking like his workmanship and functioning like his workmanship, praying, loving, 
serving and declaring God's truth, the world is going to know that our God is alive. The world is going to know that we don't serve an inanimate object. We serve a living God who responds, who saves, and we will be able to say and declare the truth as Isaiah 43, 11 did. I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other savior. The church needs to declare this truth on behalf of our God. We are his ambassadors. And we need to be able to say this loudly and clearly. And the way that we do that is times like this, difficulty like this. This virus will come and go, folks. It'll come and go. Life will go back to maybe a changed state of normal, but it will go back. We will move on past this should the Lord tarry. My greatest fear is not coming through this. My greatest fear is wasting this. This is our time. Would you pray with me, church? Let's bow our heads together and let's pray. Lord, for whoever's listening in this moment, I ask for your spirit to come upon them. I ask for your Holy Spirit to empower them. I ask God that we would be a people who is ready, Lord, to do what is necessary in this season. I pray, God, that you would fill our joy. Lord, so many are down right now, so many people that I'm interacting with at the right distance, but Lord, interacting with, (laughs) God, there's so much fear, there's so much concern, and Lord, you're in control. We don't have to fear. You're the light of our life. You're the God of our salvation. You save us. Lord, if you take us home, great. If you preserve us here, let the church be seen as the light that you have molded her to be. Jesus, I pray for an empowering of your spirit, not just on the big church, but Lord, I pray this specifically over transform. I pray it over our people I prayed over those who have been watching, even online the last few weeks, that are like, wow, this is, I'm connecting with this body, with this church that's connecting with this ministry. I pray that we would be empowered for our city, for the city of Coeur d'Alene, for the city of Post Falls, for the city of Hayden, that we would be empowered by your spirit to do your will, to do your work, and that people would see because, God, we have a living source of hope. That's a realization. It's reality. And so, Lord, I I just ask that we would commit to you our concern. Lord, that we would release and relinquish our anxiety. Lord, we are so thankful for all you've done in this time. Thank you, God, for providing not only for ministry, but for the families in our church. I thank you for enabling us to provide for uh, people who don't have a home. Lord, to show through practical means that you love them. Show us ways that we can engage with the situation further. Provide for your church the things that they need, Lord. And may all of this glorify you in the end and draw lost souls into the kingdom. 